Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host in Minneapolis, Charlie McCarran, and in this show I talk with composers, songwriters, producers, and scientists to find out how to write better music. In this episode, we'll hear from Grammy-nominated producer Andy Thompson about his creative process in arranging and producing music for Bell and Sebastian and Jeremy Messersmith. First, some announcements. This episode is sponsored by my generous patrons and by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses. For a free 10-day trial, go to lynda.com quest, and that's lynda, L-Y-N-D-A. Partway through this episode, I'll play you a little sample from one of their music production courses. Now, a moment to thank my patrons. Thanks to Nurse and Angelo, who is in the Philippines and creates epic adventure soundtracks. You can support him on Patreon too, patreon.com slash nurseandangelo, N-E-R-S-O-N, Angelo. Thanks also to Brian Neurouter, who has completed four quests. The music you're hearing is Brian's piece, Apple Picking, which he wrote for quest number 10, and played by the Lux String Quartet. You can hear his music at neurouter.org, N-E-U-R-A-U-T-E-R.org. And Casper Torn from Estonia is a $3 per episode patron, so he's going to get a jingle. You can check out Casper's music at soundcloud.com slash Torn. That's spelled K-A-S-P-A-R-T-O-R-N. When Casper Torn was just a lad, he told his dad he wanted a guitar. So they took a couple strings and hooked them up to a wooden bar. Now Casper Torn is on his way to become a stick guitar master. And if he practiced every day, he might just get there faster. If you're in the Twin Cities, my composer friends in the Spitting Image Collective have a new music concert on Saturday and Sunday, May 2nd and 3rd. I'll be doing pre-concert interviews with them at 7 p.m. Saturday, it's at Studio Z in St. Paul, and Sunday, it's at Honey in Minneapolis. You can find out more at spittingimage.org. This piece you're hearing is from one of the composers in the collective, Dan Nass. It's called After the Coffee. Remember to sign up for our film score quest by May 15th to make sure you get paired up with a filmmaker. On August 13th, an 18-musician orchestra will be playing our scores live at the screening at St. Paul's Landmark Center. Sign up at composerquest.com quest15. Now for my talk with Andy Thompson. Andy's the guy who's made Jeremy Messersmith's albums sound incredibly good. Andy has also collaborated with Dan Wilson of Semisonic, Bell and Sebastian, Nathan Elliott, who was in episode 79 of this show, and he even added some instrumental parts to Taylor Swift's record Red, which earned him a Grammy nomination. In this episode, Andy shares his philosophies on mixing, and he gives some behind-the-scenes glimpses into these albums. 
for being in my bedroom studio here. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's always exciting talking to another composer slash producer slash a lot of other things. Sure. Yeah. Man of many In- slashes. Instrumental stuff. It was fun checking out all your credits. Oh, thanks. Your page. <laughs> yeah, the one that maybe we could start talking about is um, you working with Bell and Sebastian. Yep. Uh, yep. That was really cool hearing your string arrangements. Thanks. That was a lot of fun. Um, I got the gig. There's a guy named Ben Allen who did some work on Jeremy Messersmith's last record. And in doing that, he got to hear all the string arrangements that I did for Jeremy. Then he also got to hear the Laurels string quartet playing on all the stuff. And then, um, yeah, he called me up and asked if I could do strings for a project that he's working on. I was like, sure. Sounds great. And he didn't tell me what it was. <laughs> and then later on, I was talking to, um, it was his manager. I was talking to him about budget stuff. And he just casually mentioned like Bell and Sebastian. I was like, wait, that's what the project is? Oh, okay. I'm officially excited. Um, they were unsure at first about how many songs they wanted strings on. If you listen to the record, there's some like, you know, string machines, like synths there's more of that kind of stuff than they've ever done in the past but it ended up being um god i don't know six or seven songs some of them are on the like deluxe version and some of them are on the regular version and it was really cool they basically let me kind of run wild they had some very like one of the tunes ben had mocked up i think it was ben or maybe one of the band members had mocked up some midi parts otherwise they just kind of give me words or they sent me a couple, you know, other unrelated songs where that they dug the vibe of the strings. Yeah. And I just, I worked here and they were, the whole band was in Atlanta. So we actually never, we spoke on the phone and stuff during the process, but I never met them. Yeah. I would mock up the strings and I made sure the mock-up sounded really damn good. (laughs) (laughs) would. So what, did, what did you use to do the to do the mockups? I did it in Pro Tools. Um, most of the stuff they were tracking was to a click, if not all of it. So it was. I had done this in the past where I'd mock it up in Pro Tools and then spit it out to Sibelius, which I use for notation stuff. And then I used for samples. I used session strings, I believe, the native instruments. Mm. Mm. I had used that before, and I yeah, it's just a really cool. It's not solo strings, but it's not an orchestra, you know, it's like somewhere Mm. in between and it's got good key mapping and stuff. So I could get all the articulations and everything. So I would send them these mock-ups and either they'd have some changes or they'd more often than not, they'd be like, thumbs up, let's do it. And um, then we had to track it pretty fast because I came into it later on in the process. So the songs were, you know, pretty much done and the strings were kind of like the icing on the cake as they usually are for pop projects i was reading that there were maybe a few things that you pushed a little bit too far as far as like chords or dissonance there was one song cat with the cream which is very string heavy Mm -hmm. and ben sent me the uh one of the pieces from the soundtrack to there will be blood oh um which is very dissonant (laughs) and i was like great you know so the first version of that i sent was and he mentioned that he wanted it to be, I don't know exactly what he said. He, he, I thought he was saying that some dissonance would be okay. And it is, there is definitely still some in there. But 
I think I took that comment a little too freely. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really like the chords in there. There's like a lot of tremolo. I don't remember if we like double tracked a take of tremolo and a take of non-tremolo. You would do those simultaneously sometimes? like Yeah, that was one thing that I made the call during the recording session. Because I knew I wanted a lot of tremolo, but I, at times it was a little too much. So we'd either take it away from some players or on we layered multiple takes of a lot of the stuff. I would have them do tremolo on one and not on the other. But it just kind of gives it that unsettled feeling. The other one, the power of three, um, yes. I thought it was interesting too. Like for that one, did it seems like it's matching the guitar parts and the synth part? Yeah, sometimes. that was kind of like a last minute thing. Actually, that one wasn't on the original list, and Ben sent it to me and said, "Can you just double up the synth part?" Hmm. So I said, "Sure," and I just charted it out really quick. And then, and then, um, I thought the guitar part in that second verse was so awesome. I sneakily had them double that up too and when ben heard that he was like he texted me he was like oh that's great it's gonna yeah. it's gonna be featured keep your friends close your enemies at your side always keep your green eyes open wide the perception a change of direction You know, you can notate, like that stuff is super glissy and bendy and weird. And you can you can notate that stuff, but unless you have players where you can just say, listen to that guitar player and play it like a guitar player bending his strings. Um, like if, The nice thing about the laurels is that they can do that. They can hear rock moves and pop moves and know how to make it sound right. So. Mm-hmm. What's kind of your overall approach when you're... When you get a song that's half finished or something and you know they want strings, how do you decide where to put strings and how to make them be dynamic throughout the whole song? Sure. I mean, you know, that's something I'm still working on. I don't know. Sure. I've, I've, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, first you have to figure out what is the purpose of having strings on the song. You know, sometimes it's, the whole song. You know, there's a Jeremy Messersmith song called John the Determinist, where it was just... Originally, it was going to be guitar and strings, and originally, it was just going to be guitar. I'm trying to remember. We tried a couple different things and ended up realizing it would work better just as strings and voice. So that one, you know, the strings had to outline the chords, and they had to have the the rhythmic movement.
everything's very broad, you know, like the voicings are very broad and they're playing all the notes in the chord. But then sometimes, like on Power of Three, it's just like a texture, you know, so it's just going to be everything unison. And like when you're tracking in the studio, you can kind of do a lot of tricks, you know, so you can also think, well, do they want this to sound like there's an orchestra playing with the band or do you want it to sound like a quartet, you know, and so you kind of write differently hmm. based on those things. What would you do differently, say, if they wanted it to sound like an orchestra versus a string quartet? Sure. Yeah. Like, to me, I, I love, like, in a pop context, like a dry, if you can get a nice, great quartet sound with great players playing together, and it's... No it's reverb. Very little reverb, little, you yeah. know, kind of like the um, <clears throat> Eleanor Rigby, you know, I mean, they doubled that on the recording, but... It's just like it's very arranged and you've got the cello providing the root and the oftentimes the, the rhythmic movement, you know. And if you can kind of have them all working like as this unit, I really appreciate that kind of writing, you know. And some of the more, you know, big orchestral s- sounds will be more padding and, you know, just like lush filling up of space. Yeah, yeah it's not a- as intricate. You know, yeah. I mean, that's not to say you can't have an intricate, you know, orchestral string section, but that would be the feature as opposed to it being an addition to an already existing song, you know? Yeah. And it seems like if you're going to have live musicians performing, you might as well make it sound intricate. Versus, like, you could just use a sample of sure. strings in the background if you just want to... Yeah, and I've done plenty of that, too. And <clears throat> and oftentimes, I mean, depending on the, the project and the budget and stuff, it makes more sense to just use samples and then have a real player play on top of them. Hmm. You know, I did something recently where it was... The whole album was basically just... It was very slow and quiet, and it was all lush pads. You know, just string chords and so i had a violinist sometimes i'll do it myself i'm a very rusty violinist but i had somebody else just double the top part of the top two parts and it really makes a difference maybe we could talk about your Jeremy Messersmith productions. Sure. Um, and you're doing uh, a lot of things on those albums. I am, yeah. I met Jeremy right right when his first record was coming out. I met him through Dan Wilson at Dan's house. And Dan was always having people from out of town coming over to do writing sessions and record stuff. And I was actually giving Dan's daughter a piano lesson, and Jeremy came down. I was like, "Oh, who's this dude from California?" You know, because like they most they usually were, but it turns out it was Jeremy. And like two days later, I think he did his release show at Acadia, the old Acadia. And so I went there, and I was like, "Oh, this is really good." Yeah. <laughs> and the reason he was at Dan's is because they were starting to do some recording for Silver City, which is his second record. Yeah. And um, kind of halfway through that process, Jeremy brought me on to do some additional to play on a bunch of stuff and do some additional production and sometimes it was all three of us sometimes it was just dan and jeremy sometimes it was just me and jeremy it was just very it was just like kicking back recording tunes you know which is the best way to make a record welcome to suburbia 
Dan is he's kind of like a pop wizard. His recordings just sound huge and fantastic. And Jeremy is um I always joke that like when you start putting more than two mics on a drum set, he gets really nervous. <laughs> Which I'm not actually, I'm not exaggerating. There are plenty of songs on Silver City with one mic on the drum set, which is the you know polar opposite of the way Dan works. And I felt like I was kind of somewhere in between. So it was a cool, it was a cool dynamic. It worked out really well. Yeah. And then the next record was Reluctant Graveyard and Jeremy, I don't know how he came up with it, but he just, he, he had like a bunch of rules and I, I helped him, you know, from like a recording aspect, like figure out what the rules would be. And we did not do it on tape. I mean, we should have, but we basically treated, I mean, Jeremy's also like a super cheapskate. So, you know, to find like a nice room with a working tape machine and buy all the reels of tape. Oh, <laughs> he wasn't yeah. really into that, but we decided to treat Pro Tools like a tape machine, hmm. you know, so we had the songs and that was also the first time where he like got a band together. So Brian Ty came on and um, Dan Lawan. And I shifted to drums. Um, and then we tracked everything live except for vocals and strings. And then as much as we could, just tried to, like, not mess with it. You mm. know, so it's just, like, full takes. I'm sure there is some editing in there, but we really tried to not do that. I remember there was, like, a uh, Brian's guitar solo on uh, Dillinger's Eyes. He's like, wow, you really comped that really really well and i said dude that's just the take that you did (laughs) you could not believe it it's just so easy to get like when you're recording to just get hyper focused like i used to i did some work on a show for the cartoon network and when I was doing that, I would become so sensitive to like timing stuff. Like if a mm. cue was like 15 milliseconds too late, I would know it before I like zoomed in on the grid and could see it. And if you just like force yourself to like not give a crap about that and just track it, call it done and then go back to it later, it just sounds, sounds great. It sounds real. You know, it's, it's hard to keep focused like that. And, you know, we did not do a very good job on heart murmurs of, of just letting things be, you know, <laughs> just because a lot of those songs were kind of created in the studio. And so you were forced to just listen over and over and over. Whereas on Reluctant Graveyard, like the songs existed and the arrangements existed. And we just needed to play them into microphones. Yeah, that that's hard for me to resist the temptation to nudge things around and totally edit a lot. There's a, I can't, I've never been able to quite like define it. But there's this fudge factor that is totally acceptable when you're recording live players in a room. Like when you're recording a rock band, not everything's going to line up, you know, but if it's like good players playing with good feel, like it's just, it's going to sound great that you don't get when you're building something like track by track by track, mm. you know? Yeah, I suppose. And I feel like it's just that it's like building something track by track, like kind of sucks you into that hyper, hyper aware state. Where you're not necessarily hyper aware of the music that you're recording, but you're hyper aware of the details of the music you're recording, you know? Yeah. The timing and the pitch and the which is all very important. But when you just do it all at once, I mean that's like when you listen to a live recording of a band, oftentimes, like ob- objectively, it's terrible. You know? 
but as taken as a whole, it's just amazing. You know, it's yeah. like an energy. So, yeah, it's hard to not be focused like that. And I think a lot yeah. of musicians are naturally like their brains gravitate towards that. So, hmm. Yeah, and I, I suppose if you're doing it in a live setting too, if a timing thing happens, maybe everyone's doing it at the same time so it feels more sure. planned or yeah or they compensate for the error somehow <laughs> yeah totally i mean if the drummer's rushing everybody kind of rushes with them and rushing can oftentimes sound very exciting <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know as as the band's drummer how do you approach drum parts for, for sure the band well for reluctant graveyard it was pretty cut and dry like what 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 we all should be doing kind of like i said we were very obviously drawing from a certain style of music from a certain time period so much so that i was kind of like i was thinking when the record was going to come out people are going to be like oh my god it's so derivative it just sounds like a beatles record but but, uh, we definitely created our own thing which is cool but you know the drum parts it was more with that record just getting the sounds so just like getting my kit sounding like it should and then just keeping it nice and simple and then not, you know, not going crazy with 17 mics. I'm trying to remember, but I feel like for that, we did like a kick and snare and the kick mic wasn't like a kick drum mic, you know, hmm. and then the mono overhead crotch mic, which is like kind of right in the middle of everything. It's like above the bass drum pointed at the snare drum, equidistant from the toms. And then a rim mic, and I think that was it. Five hmm. mics. You so know, if we even... were actually recording to like eight track tape, we probably we'd either sub mix or not use five mics. But <laughs> we took a little luxury in that. Sure. And so you didn't have like stereo mics above the drum nope. set or anything. No, nope. hmm. we did almost nothing in stereo on that record. Hmm. You know, one thing I. One thing a lot of people dog the like Beatles like early stereo mixes, including like the stereo Beatles mixes that everybody knows, is that panning is so weird. But yeah. I love that, you know. <laughs> you know, apparently like those mixes were just kind of like an afterthought, and stereo was so new they just you know would put the vocals on the right and the drums on the left. And I mean, now it's like you just can't do that. But there are plenty of songs on that record, on Reluctant Graveyard, where we did that. I think vocals yeah. are always down the middle, but I put drums on one side. I just always liked that, if if only to like mix things up a little bit, you know, or really get that like cool separation, mm-hmm. you know, like you hear the tambourine on the right and the drums on the left, and you can just like picture that tambourine being recorded. So yeah, not much, like all the piano was mono, all the strings. I don't remember how we did the strings, but we probably had stereo mics on those. But um, yeah, drums were mono, one mic on a bass amp. It was very um, liberating. And yeah, the sound, especially the drum sounds on that record, I think turned out really well. It's a good reality check. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's interesting because I did notice that there's a lot of hard panning and, and not like... A reverb effect added to it to make it feel 
out to the other side a little bit or something. Yeah. That's, we did, a, I mean, like, you know, back in the day, like, right when stereo consoles came out, they just had switches. They didn't have pan knobs. So that was all you could do. Tried to use on um, Toussaint Gray. We recorded that that record at the library, which is in an old brewery building northeast. And there's a one of the first lyrics is echoes up and down the halls, I think. And the hallway at that place sounds amazing. It's this old like concrete, you know, and stone building. So we dragged some cables out into the hallway. It was a little bit hard because there was a down the hall from the studio is like a internet hosting company with these like server racks that are really loud oh. with all the fans and stuff. <laughs> so there's actually like a decent amount of like fan noise mixed in with that reverb, that nice like natural reverb. Racing up and down the halls, footsteps that go off the walls. Summertime is here again and I'm not thinking of the friends I leave behind. How did you treat the album after that then, Heart Murmurs? Heart Murmurs? Uh, um... That whole record is either like the songs are very small or they're very big. There's not much in between. And so we knew we wanted to try new things. And there are some songs like um, Steve, like we did several different arrangements of before we ended up where it was, which is like completely stripped down to piano and vocal and a little bit of cello. Steve, I'm your best friend. There's nothing that I wouldn't try. But other songs, like, you know, It's Only Dancing, we knew we wanted a really, really big kind of epic sound. It's only dancing. So we were, like, tracking as, you know, the four-piece band, knowing that all this other stuff was going to happen. Which can be really challenging. And that song especially, like it went through, like Jeremy for that one had a rule that I was never allowed to hit the snare drum. (laughs) (laughs) For some reason I went along with it. I should not have gone along with that because (laughs) we ended up overdubbing an entirely, an entire second drum kit where I'm playing a lot of snare drum. You know, after a while I was like, something's not working. I think it needs some snare drum. But it kind of worked out as a cool like juxtaposition between these, this thundering toms and this kind of like tight almost like a breakbeat thing we weren't afraid to scrap stuff like i said there's a several arrangements of steve there are you know like four or five songs we like finished recording and then just scrapped them but at that point, we all kind of realized that there were a couple songs that were kind of more leftovers from Reluctant Graveyard. Hmm. So we nixed those, and he had written a few more. So we recorded three more tunes. So that was um, Hitman and You'll Only Break His Heart and another one that's been that's unreleased that might be on the next record. But those two are like maybe my two favorite songs on the record yeah and i feel like we kind of hit like we had worked out all the kinks of the process of recording heart murmurs and then when we got to go back and record a couple more 
we kind of knew what we were doing. You know, we knew how it was going to work, and that was just turned out really well. Yeah. Yeah, especially, like, you'll only break his heart. And I feel like that's one where if... I, I'm curious how that works live, but it seems like it would be almost kind of a boring song if it was just guitar and vocals. Sure, there's because, only two chords in the whole thing. Yeah, and the melody seems to repeat the same oh, yeah. way. And it's so cool how the strings and the effects come in like very subtly at first and then because it's like yeah just two different songs almost at first really yeah i mean that was a that was a pleasure to do i mean jeremy i (laughs) like he made another rule for himself which is write a song with two cards (laughs) and he did it (laughs) um you know he has like a slightly altered tuning on the guitar like a Joni mitchell Mm -hmm. tuning so that adds a little bit of color that wouldn't be there otherwise but yeah we knew like we just wanted to him for him to like sing the song and then just things to kind of come in and out you'll only break his heart 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 it's nice enough Crave adventures where there once was fire, only embers, and you don't want to play the villain. What he doesn't know, sure won't kill him. You'll only break his heart. You'll only break his heart. You'll only break his heart. Much later, when we were playing it live, we're like, oh, this is kind of like a Wilco song, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like Yankee Hotel, yeah. Foxtrot. Um, there's very simple songs with interesting textures and sounds coming in and out. And we knew we wanted strings, and we on that one, it was just, it wasn't the Laurels, it was Dan Luan and a violinist named Zach Scanlon. And they're both very good improvisers. And so we basically just said, like, we kind of told them what we wanted it to sound like when we were done. You know, like, Which here, was, here's what we want the final product yeah. to sound like. Basically, just, like, really slow growing, going from low to high chords. Not even chords, though. I mean, they're just playing, like, diatonic, you know, scale tones. And harmonics are okay. And, like, it can sound ugly at times, you know? And so they just did this like slowly growing thing. And we did like, it was just the two of them. So we maybe did five or six takes and just layered those all together. And that's pretty much it. If sometimes they got too melodic and we would just get rid of that. Um, Ben Allen um, mixed that song and he did that. There's like a drum fade out and that's all him. And then those vocal harmonies come in, and everything kind of crashes back in, which was really cool. And live, that's like a great moment. That one I just kind of thought of as like 
almost like the backing section is like the underscore, like a mm. film score going along with Jeremy, this lone sure. singer. Yeah. Yeah. I it does know. set a cool, it makes for a cool setting of the song, you know, and it's like Jeremy is so consistent and like he's literally very consistent. Like his, his tempos, he's very consistent with his <laughs> tempos and his singing, you know, and uh, like you're saying, the melody kind of repeats a lot. So just to have this very consistent static, in a way, thing moving while everything is yeah. kind of turning into chaos around him. And then, oh, on that one, too, we had um, Brian play guitar, but we had this uh, engineer who was helping us out play his pedal board. Hmm. Like, unbeknownst to him. I mean, he didn't, hmm. I mean, he, well, he, he, he knew the guy was doing really? it, but he didn't know what he was going to do. Oh. So yeah. the end of that song gets really ugly <laughs> you know it's <laughs> yeah. really dissonant and there's all these like and the song's in like b i think and but there's all these like c naturals happening and it's mm. if you solo that it, track sorry go ahead oh and doesn't it eventually like transpose up like a half yeah. step or two or yeah something? when we started doing the originally was going to do that when you realized that bubblin should come after it we did this like a, a very slow pitch shift in pro tools and then crossfaded the strings coming in. Hmm. Yeah. When we play it live, we have to play You'll Only Break His Heart and See. Because <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not going to make that that 30-second half-step half gliss happen yeah. live. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Bubbling, I really like too. Yeah, that one turned out really well. That was a, that was a cool one, Jeremy. That was the one that was least formed, I think, when Jeremy brought it to us. He um he had the chord progression, just that main, you know, that those two chords. I don't even know. I mean, I guess like C and then B flat over C. And then he had two chords from the bridge, which was. I don't even know what key the bridge starts in, but like one and then flat five. Yeah, that one, the production is really cool on it too. Yeah, um, that... Sorry, and I, I especially like the vocal effect you have on him. It's like seems like a slap back. 
sure that go and uh, yeah there's just a lot of cool stuff going on yeah that one that's another one that ben mixed and he i would put like slap back on jeremy but like ben had the balls to like turn it up really loud <laughs> you know <laughs> um i mean he put that slap back on there um but when i do it i'll you know I'll often mix it pretty low and he's just he'll just mix it really nice. there's some ron sucksmith records that it's the same thing it's like like right when i hear the lead vocal i'm like wow they really they really turn that delay up loud <laughs> yeah it sounds weird but oh my god it sounds so good yeah <laughs> and then you just give into it yeah and there's also a cool delay on the drums We did not do that to a click. I mean, that whole song is mm. off the grid. So I don't know if he would so, just kind of... I don't know if my time is good enough. I'd be surprised if my time was good enough to just set set a delay time or if he had to automate the hmm. the delay time a little bit. Yeah. Because when you do delay stuff, you try to keep it synced to the tempo. Yeah. I mean, if you have... If you're working off a grid, you can just set it to dotted eighth mm-hmm. or whatever. I have sometimes in the past, you can create a tempo map. So have the drummer play free, you know, or have the whole band play free. And then you can go in and tell Pro Tools or whatever where the downbeats are. And so every bar, it'll, you know, shift very slightly. 64 BPM, 64.2 BPM. And then you can set your, you know, dotted date, and it will follow that. Cool. Um, Bubbling was the one you guys played on David Letterman, too, yes. right? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's cool performance. <laughs> yeah, thanks. That was a lot of fun. We were, we found out that we we're going to play on Letterman, and we we're like, okay, we, well, what song are we going to do? We'll probably just do Tourniquet or something. I don't know. That seems like it would make sense. And then the the music booker producer got in touch with Jeremy, and she's like, we listened to the record, and we, you should do Bubbling. And we were actually like score awesome because that at the CD release shows like that was like the high point for us. Mm -hmm. The woman who requested it was basically like, it will be, it'll work really well on TV. And she was totally right. You know, because it starts with the strings and it kind of like slowly builds and then the bass comes in and the guitar comes in. So it's like, it's very like, and they like, I was blown away by the, the blocking that we did there and how the they were like you know four or five camera guys following all the musical action they had the drum fill camera you know (laughs) it was like like they kind of like hit every moment and it's a very you know it goes from tiny to huge to tiny and they really like told that story in three minutes and 20 seconds or whatever the length that we did have to cut a little bit shorter what what did you cut from that to make it shorter we cut, there's a lot of discussion about what we should cut. We cut, we, the intro's shorter, the strings, and then we cut half the second verse. And then I think after the bridge, Jeremy comes in a little bit sooner with the last little vocal melody. Hmm. Just cut the filler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, we've talked a lot about your production, but you also are a composer and... Um, Something like that. <laughs> yeah. What kind of projects do you work on, like, as your composition projects? Sure. I mean, I majored in composition in college, in classical composition. 
I did a lot of, um, I was very active in the jazz department of the school I went to. So I did a lot of jazz arranging and writing, but I also, you know, I knew that I wanted to like play pop music and do rock music. And I discovered recording in college and I was really, really into that. So writing notes on paper kind of like fell by the wayside for many, many, many years. Actually, just recently, I've been kind of mentoring a guy who just graduated with a degree in composition, and I was showing him some of the stuff I wrote, like my senior year. I was like, oh, this isn't half bad, actually. <laughs> Maybe I should try to get this performed again. But yeah, it's, it's a, that's a world I've been wanting to kind of get back into. Um, it's a little bit tricky. I feel like a lot of it is like, just feels a little closed off to me. You know, the whole, I get the emails from the American Composers Forum, all the grants and stuff like that. And I've applied for some grants and of course I did not get them. And I just feel like I'm just so far out of the system, you know, like how am I going to get back in and do I want to get back in that way? Mm -hmm. Anyway, so like something recently I did that was really cool is uh, Dessa came to me. She's a hip hop artist from Minneapolis and singer, part of the Doomtree crew and somehow she i'm not exactly sure how she did it but um i think i think uh they approached her but vocal lessons is a choir here and a really great choir that i actually grew up listening to i went to i grew up going to plymouth church hmm. so i heard that group hmm. sing every week and I, I always knew they were fantastic and she was tasked with writing a piece for them and then doing an arrangement of an existing piece for them and she knew that I knew how to do that stuff. And we ended up collaborating on a piece together called The Good Fight. I'm swinging on my shadow. I'm swinging on my shadow. I'm swinging on my shadow. at Orchestra Hall and it was really cool and it kind of like scratched that itch or or is that the right metaphor it I was bitten by the bug I think that's the <laughs> one I should say I was like oh yeah having live performances of like chamber music or choral music is a, that's a it's a pretty cool thing and I definitely you know I have like extremely high standards you know I think the pieces turn out great when I heard them I was like oh, I would I would have written that piano part differently. <laughs> you know, like that's all I can hear. Mm -hmm. um, so part of it is just like, I, I want to do it again just to get better at it, yeah. you know? And there are also some, some really, there's like a lot more crossover between, like there's groups like Y Music or the um, Magic Magic Orchestra in San Francisco that are like severely highly trained classical players that enjoy collaborating with you know, pop musicians or like doing film scores that are a little more off the beaten path. And that's really exciting for me to see. I mean, it'd be great. It'd be great to actually, I've in talking with the laurels and other like string players around here, it would be cool to have a resource like that. You know, even if it's just like a collective of people, like that's the, the magic magic yeah. orchestra 
you know, they can be a full orchestra or they can just be a couple players, you know, and they're pretty good about like working with people's budgets or, you know, and also coaching them on how to be realistic about what you can do. And, but to have something like that would be really great. I've had like a string quartet in my back pocket for a long time. I mean, to figure out a, a reason to finish it, hmm. you know, yeah. so we'll see. Yeah. I'd love to have more crossover type stuff and not so much stuffy concert environments. Yeah, like a long time ago, I was talking with another composer around here. He, well, he's Devon, Devon Gray. He's a keyboardist and bassoonist, but he has, he studied composition, I believe, at New England Conservatory. So he's kind of like me, you know, like he did le- the legit thing and now he, you know, plays in a bunch of bands. He's super talented. And we were talking about somehow, you know, getting a something together at the Cedar or something. I was also talking to the the violist from the Laurels, Erica, and she was a- applying for a grant to commission new works for viola, accompanied viola, or solo viola. I feel like that's what it takes, is like initiative from the writers and also from the performers. And then just like the legwork it takes to book shows and get people out or try to scrounge up some money to make it happen. So we'll see. I think the seeds are being planted. I think we all need to shine a little more sunlight on it to get yeah. this proud. <laughs> um, but we'll see. I, I think, I think like if any city could sustain it, I think Minneapolis is a pretty top candidate yeah. you know, to sustain that kind of collaboration. Yeah. So you've been making your living doing music for a while, right? I have, yeah. I graduated from college in 2002, and I've been doing it ever since. I was definitely scrapping, really scrapping for many years. (laughs) But I think I figured out a a little comfy spot. Yeah. What advice would you have for people who are trying to get their start doing music stuff and... One thing, I think know what you're good at and know what you're not good at. I always enjoyed doing a lot of things, but once it became clear to me what like came less naturally to me so that I was able to either offload that so I could focus on the things that I did that did come naturally and I did enjoy, that helped a lot. What what were those things for you that you um that didn't come naturally? Like a lot of the the playing, you know, like I, I have spent so much of my life practicing instruments and I don't do that anymore. I am every year, I think I'm a better player than I was the year before. But I realized, like, especially, you know, going to a music school and either being, you know, surrounded by classical players who were just technically amazing or by, you know, jazz saxophonists who could just shred and shed all day for a long time i just felt like i need that i needed to do that like that was what i needed to do then i realized i was never going to get to that level you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so it wasn't like a like why am i why should i even try i give up but more like oh, okay i think my strength lies in playing musically playing with a, a good feel you know once i realized oh like my my strength as a piano player is figuring out the right parts and playing very simple parts and adding like just enough counter melody, you know, like 
like Ben Montench, like from the from the Heartbreakers, nothing he does is fancy, but he is what he does play is just amazing. It's just simple, and every note is where it should be, and it's like he's adding to the song exactly what he should be. And um, he played on Dan Wilson's first solo record, and I was over there doing some work, and I I had one of the sessions open, and and. Dan stepped out and I just like soloed up Ben Mont's piano parts and just like listened to him and it was just like a revelation. Don't worry about the time, we'll find a place to stay. The people around here seem familiar in some way. Look kinda like we did before we got so cold. And that kind of thing is to get better at that is almost like instrumentally agnostic like it doesn't matter you don't have to sit down at a piano necessarily because it's not technically hard by any means you just have to like become more aware of music and arranging and how you fit in so i can production helped in that regard totally yeah and i mean it's interesting coming at production from a composition background because like when I, well, I, I taught briefly, uh, or I taught for a few years actually at, at a college here. And one of the things I taught was beginning production for composition students. And when we got to mixing, I would always say like, you're never going to mix a bad arrangement into a, a great sounding song. Like 90%, I mean, 98% of a great mix is an awesome song performed well and arranged well. And often, like when you're when you find yourself struggling with a mix, it's because the, there's something wrong with the arrangement. You know, there's frequencies clashing, or there's things happening where they shouldn't be, or too much happening all over. So, being able to kind of connect in my mind, you know, like the the technicalities of mixing with the realities of of arranging, has been pretty interesting. You know, whether I'm overdubbing on something or just listening to a great overdub on something that I'm mixing or producing, your whole awareness of what makes for a good feeling part just kind of gets heightened. And then you can apply that to guitar or piano, any melodic instrument. Yeah. Yeah. Drumming is kind of a different beast. I do wish I had more time to drum, but it's all good. (laughs) (laughs) One thing I always wonder about is like, when you're mixing a bigger track, like a huge rock track or something like that, how do you deal with all the sound going on mm. and make it still without compressing the heck out of it? I mean, what do you focus on? And One thing it took me a long time to realize is that for something to sound big, like there can't be that much going on. So oftentimes it's a matter of like figuring out what's essential and what's essential to the the bigness of the sound and then just like stripping away the other stuff. Like if you're if you're writing for an orchestra and you had every player playing a different note, it's not going to sound big, you know? You have these big sections of instruments playing in unison or maybe playing two different parts. So like the individual sounds are big, but you're not having 98 different parts going on, you know? You're having like hmm. 16 parts or what? I don't know. I'm just throwing yeah. numbers out. And it's a lot like just from like a technical angle, like it's a lot easier to make one 
guitar track sound huge than it is to make six layered guitar tracks sound huge. Hmm. You know, there's just too hmm. much. There's only so much information you can force out of a pair of speakers. Hmm. You know, so the more you can strip away, the bigger it can sound. And just making those sounds big. I was I was doing a project recently that's um, most of it's just guitar, bass, and drums. But the engineer who was working on it just got these great, the sounds are great and the sounds are big. And we want it to sound like super big and rocking. And it's just the three of us, but like the individual things add up to, you know, much greater than the whole. Yeah. And another thing, like w- with arranging, you can have a lot of stuff going on, but then those things have to be sim- smaller and simpler hmm. or more spread out. Yeah. You know, so whether it's having a guitar part just play a single note or maybe octaves instead of, you know, like even when you add that third note in a triad, like it becomes so instantly harmonically dense, then you're like, you're just taking up too much space. You know, so more things playing single notes or. Hmm. Yeah. Or from a mixing perspective, just like filtering. So, you know, we do not need the low end of this guitar part. We do not need the high end of that drum part. Just make more room. Yeah. Yeah, I was noticing that, I think on Heart Murmurs, um, one of the guitar solos, maybe in Bubbling, is just really almost tinny mm. and distorted. Yeah. Like, but it it really works in the context of like everything else going on. Yeah, that was the old trick of fuzz pedal or distortion pedal directly into Pro Tools, mm. you know? So like no amp, just like directly in there. And it's a hmm. like on its own, it's a horrible sound. Yeah. <laughs> but if you need something to cut, huh. that will cut. <laughs> With Heart Murmurs, I, I noticed that it said mastered for itunes mm. what is that that do you know i do know what it is i sh- i'm not i'm not the one to tell you what it is because i don't know exactly what it is there's like a white paper apple released where you can download that's something a lot of mastering engineers do i was just reading about this in an interview actually with was it bob ludwig in tape up apparently it was at the uh the owner of apogee electronics hmm. they make digital converters and stuff was bugging Apple about how like digital music files were getting shortchanged and here's some easy things you could do to make it better. A, a lot of it has to do with using all 24 bits. I mean, instead of doing 16-bit downloads, doing 24-bit. And beyond that, there's some more technical <laughs> stuff. Mm, sure. Um, but m- most of the projects I've had mastered, you know, in the last year or so, they'll say, do you want that? Huh. I, th- I think basically before they chop it down to 16 bits, there's a 24-bit master that they will give to iTunes. And I think iTunes will like keep it uncompressed like in their vault just in For case. For the future. Yeah, um, in case something else happens. Hmm. Cool. Time to break in with a little lynda.com promo. I tried to search for mastering, and lo and behold, one of the first things that popped up was a course called Mastering for iTunes. Mastering in general has always been a bit of a gray area for me, and this course seems especially useful. Here's a clip from one of the course videos. So what are the tricks to get the best sound quality from an iTunes encode? 
It turns out that the considerations are about the same as with MP3 encoding. First of all, turn it down a bit. A song that's flatlined at minus 0.1 dB full scale isn't going to encode as well as a song with some headroom. This is because the iTunes AAC encoder tends to output a tad hotter than the source, so there may be intersample overloads that happen at that level that aren't detected on a typical peak meter. All digital audio converters on consumer and professional audio gear have different sensitivities, and some may overload while others sound clean. As a result, a level that doesn't trigger an over on your DAW's converter may actually be an over on another playback unit. If you back it down to minus 0.5 or even minus 1 dB, the encode will sound a lot better and your listener probably won't be able to tell much of a difference in level anyway. Lynda.com offers in-depth video courses like this on a huge variety of subjects, including every major piece of music software out there. Pro Tools, Logic, Ableton Live, Finale, Sibelius, etc. For a free trial, visit lynda.com slash quest. That's L-Y-N-D-A. Now, back to my talk with Andy Thompson. Did I see that you also make gear? Yeah. Like a compressor? I am not, yes, I am not an electrical engineer. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot design circuits. I know very basically how they work, but I've always enjoyed building things. I think if I wasn't a musician, I would either be a computer programmer or an engineer of some sorts. So yeah, when it came to like upgrade my studio, especially, you know, right after college when I had no money, right around that time, there were some companies coming out with kits you could buy. So, like, my first one was um, actually a guy who used to live here. He lives in Portland now. His name is John Hampton. He has a company called Hamptone. And you can just, he'll just send you all the parts for a really nice mic preamp. Hmm. And you put it together yourself and you save 50%, you know, hmm. in cost. Because it is pretty labor intensive. But once you learn how to use a soldering iron and not burn yourself, it's pretty easy, hmm. you know. So, I did a bunch, I did some of that. There's a company called Seventh Circle. I've, done a bunch of those i recently built a, a like an 1176 clone from a company out in seattle so there's just more and more and there's a website now called diy recording equipment i think that's just kind of a repository for all the kits that hmm. you can buy and have all your creations held up oh yeah so far yeah totally yeah i mean the normal stuff like i recently had to replace a pot on one of my hamptones but you know it's 15 years old and that's going to happen oh. um yeah they all sound great I just enjoy it. It's like it's actually very relaxing for me to like sit there with a PCB and just solder resistors and listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. What What do you do for breaks from your musical life? Like, do you ever get sick of music? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's weird. Like, there's like the the macro on the macro level. Like once a year, I'll go up to my parents have a little house up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So I will go up there and like last year I brought a mandolin and I would like, and some like Bach, you know, violin music and I would play that. But that's so far removed from what I usually do. It's almost like a complete break, but I'll go up there, you know, for like 10 days or a couple of weeks. And that's always really great. Cause then I come back and I'm like, I want to do music, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> whereas on a day to day basis, it's it, it's an interesting thing. I've been very aware of like my workflow recently. If I'm too scattered and I'm just kind of like dipping my toes in a lot of different projects, but not really immersing myself, I will get really burned out really quickly. 
just because like my I'm not getting that like deep brain thinking time, which I've realized is extremely important. And so I have to be careful to not dip my toes too much and to like devote entire days to just one thing. Because like several things happen. One, I'll just be very productive. And then I'll just kind of get like addicted. I mean, like honestly addicted to whatever it is that I'm doing, you know, to the point where I finish for the day. And then I think, oh my God, I, I need to keep doing this. So like at, you know, nine o'clock the next morning, I'm like, I'm back at it. And my brain is being satiated. So one thing I do, I, there's this program called Freedom for, it's for, I think Mac and Windows now, but I highly recommend it. And you turn it on and it just like cuts your computer off from the outside world. <laughs> so you can't check your email. You can't like go to iTunes to listen to something. Like you can't go to Facebook. You can't do anything um, unless you restart your computer. And that's just like great. It's so hard, especially with like so much work being done over email these days to just like be constantly, you know, and maybe once a year I'll get burned when I miss an email for three hours, you know, but usually it can wait. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so doing that and then just getting like super deeply immersed into whatever I'm working on and getting that like kind of like obsessive addictive thing going. Yeah. That helps a lot. Yeah, I've noticed that with myself too. Like, I have to have a day set aside where I like take care of all the emails and Mm. all the crappy stuff and cleaning my room and that kind of thing. And then maybe the next day I won't have those things to worry about and can do solid composing for the day or something. Just kind of like managing that. Yeah. I also, I have kids and like when they came. My wife and I used to, she was a freelancer at the time, and I've always been a freelancer, and we would just work all the time. We'd work late at night, and we'd work on the weekends, and that was kind of bad news. And so when they came, like, I don't work on the weekends. I do sometimes. <laughs> I definitely do sometimes. <laughs> but, like, the rule is I don't. And if I do, it's very compartmentalized. Like, I'm going to the studio, and I'll be gone all day. But I really try not to do that. I try to avoid working on the weekends. And that's been a big, big help. Because, like, I, and then Sunday night, I'm, like, eager to get back to work on Monday, which is a great thing mm-hmm. i'm just remembering you asked earlier about my recommendations for people trying to make a living in music An- another thing i would say is don't be afraid of the business of music i feel like especially in this town you know you can make the argument that some towns are too business oriented and everybody's just trying to make a buck off music but here it seems like people um a lot of musicians i run into are kind of business averse and when it comes to like signing a contract they get really scared or they just don't bother to learn about performance royalties and register with ASCAP or whatever it is and well it's good to be able to compartmentalize that stuff you know you don't want to like have all that stuff hanging over your head when you're writing a song or trying to record it or something being aware of that is just it's better for everybody and being able to use it to your advantage. You know, I mean, it's not easy to make a living in music, especially these days when nobody knows what's going on with the music industry. But, you know, there are mechanisms in place that enable musicians to make money. And if you're not at least knowledgeable and doing the minimum, you should be. Mm-hmm. And um, you've been doing commercial music, too, um, yeah. throughout the years. 
it's pretty impressive looking at your scribble sound as your company. Yeah. How did you have the motivation to do all those tracks that are on your SoundCloud? Oh. Or was that... uh, That library stuff. Well, yeah. You know, I graduated from college and I was thinking like, how, how do I make a living with music again? And I knew that of one way that composers could make music. And I had actually talked with on the phone of, uh, to a guy who had graduated from University of Michigan where I went and he was doing that in Chicago. And I was like, oh, that's like something I, I think I could do. So that was always in the back of my head. So I came back to Minneapolis and I, I don't remember what I did. If I cold called bunch of companies but i did have a connection to a great guy named ken chastain who uh he works at pixel farm right now but he used to work at a place called echo boys and i just kind of like bugged him enough that he listened to my demo and that he dug it and then he he bugged his um the owner of echo boys to listen to my demo and then they kind of let me come in so I just, you know, I've always done that as a freelancer. I've never been employed by a music house or anything like that. Though there are a lot of great musicians in Minneapolis that are. I, it's just always something I've done, you know, on the side. And it's been great. I mean, from a financial perspective, it's, it varies year to year, but it's been a pretty reasonably consistent way to make money. I also really enjoy it. It, it totally depends on the project you're doing. And sometimes you get something and you're like, oh my God, am I writing the same stupid cue for the 50th time? Like, <laughs> this is not going to be good. But I kind of enjoy the challenge of, you know, especially if it's something that I'm unfamiliar with. I'll be like, all right, I got to figure out how to make this work and sound good and legit and interesting and challenge myself. And a lot of times I'll like take it as an excuse to learn a new recording technique or whatever. Like, okay, I'm going to do mid-side stereo technique on this or something just because I've never done it and why not? So I started doing some work for Echo Boys, and then I and then Ken went to Pixel Farm. I did some work for Pixel Farm, and I knew some editors in New York City that I've did some work with. So there's the stuff I've done, you know, that's been on TV or commercials or stuff like that. And then you know, in that process, there's just tons of demos that you write, you know. And a lot of times, I would think, God, this demo is better than what they picked, you know. <laughs> so I just like collect. I just like had all these things lying around. A few years ago, I realized. Like I started seeing more and more non-exclusive music libraries happening. So one yeah. is called Jingle Punks that I have all my music with, and they've gotten me many, many placements. You know, and the money's a different story. It's not the same and not as good as if you're hired to do custom music for something. But, but you've kind of already done the work. And yeah, so, I just had yeah. all these pieces of music, compositions that I'd done that were just sitting on my hard drive. So now some of them have gotten a pretty decent second life Hmm. yeah yeah that's i i've kind of started doing a project kind of like that in mind of like a non-exclusive put it up on some royalty free sort of sites and see what happens sure yeah but i kind of lost momentum on that Mm. just because yeah I mean, there's so much out there already. There is so much out there. I've noticed a lot of, like, stuff that I've written that's gotten, um, that people seem to gravitate towards is pretty specific, like, genre-specific. But it is, I was also going to say, it's a lot lot of work to, like, keep that stuff organized and keep tabs on it all, you know? And that's why publishing companies exist, you know? Because that's that's what they do, is they 
organize and pitch music and stuff like that. So it is tricky to do it on your own and I'm, and just stay on top of it. Yeah. Well, your ad music that you have featured on your site is pretty cool. Like thanks the um the one for Garmin the GPS yeah, yeah. commercial. <laughs> It's like French punk sort of. That or? was fun. Yeah, I um, it was that was a Super Bowl ad. They came to me and said we need a song. It has to have French lyrics, and it has to sound like late seventies punk. And I could do the late seventies punk thing, but I couldn't <laughs> do the French thing. But luckily, my one of my best friends is fluent in French, hmm. so I had like two ideas for lyrics. I don't even remember what they were. I, I took French in high school, so I could say like six words. And I was like, something like this, you know, <laughs> wee wee. <laughs> anyway, so he wrote he wrote some lyrics and then we got together and just banged them out and made them fit the melody and kind of came up the melody. And we actually both, he's not a trained musician, but that's him and I singing in unison oh. on that whole song. So it's like this weird like meld of our voices. Yeah, and that was one where I like banged out the music in like an hour and a half, and then we banged out the vocals in an hour and a half, and then the that was the demo, and it just kept going up the chain, and that's on the Super Bowl ad. Um, that's awesome. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. The other one that stood out was the one for the bully awareness oh, yeah, yeah. sort of PSA. Yeah. And the the timing on that seems like it had to be perfect or did did they time to your music with the animation or no, no you had to... they you you'll often get sent the animation or the final cut and they'll be like all right this is this is it this is the cut and then you'll write your music and the next day they're like eh, it changed a little bit everything's off oh, by no. two and a half seconds which i believe happened on that project but yeah that was interesting they it was a really cool animation like i remember peter and the wolf was like thrown out and they had this idea where the bully would have a sound and he ended up being a contrabassoon and then the other kid would have a sound and that was um like glockenspiel or some sort of bell i think and i'm guessing um, you sampled the contrabassoon yeah so i did not have a real contrabassoonist (laughs) bullying happens every day on the playground on the bus in the classroom bullying affects kids in many ways Kids who are bullied may suffer from anxiety and depression. They can feel scared, helpless, and alone. We've had enough. We are ready to raise our voices and say stop. Because the best way to take away a bully's power is for one kid to stand up and say, that's not right. If just one kid speaks up, the bullying ends almost immediately. I have to ask you about... Taylor Swift's record. Oh, yes, yes. Of course. <laughs> Congrats on the Grammy nomination. Thanks, yeah. I had a small part in that record. <laughs> yes. Is it like kind of playing some guitar and keyboards? And yeah, that? that was through Dan Wilson. He he lives out in L.A. now, and he's been doing more production work since he's been out there and also since he did the Adele record. So, yeah, he was working with Taylor on two songs and he would just send he just sends me stuff to play on and it's kind of he'll just send it to me and i'll be like so what do you want he'll be like oh you know 
And he won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> or he'll say, eh, something kind of wobbly and weird. I'll be like, okay. It's kind of nice how, how little direction I'll get, you know, and, and I'll, I'll do whatever the song tells me to do, you know, whatever I'm inspired to do. And then I'll send it back to him and then he will, I, I'm not the only person he does that with, you know, and then he'll kind of like take all these different parts and make a cool, cohesive arrangement out of it. And I actually, myself, I've been doing that sometimes with production that I've been doing. I'll just send it and I will intentionally not, like if I do need something, I'll say it, but I'll try not to because I love being surprised and getting the thing back and being like, all right, all right, I can make this work, you know? Yeah. So that was one of those projects where he sent it to me and actually he went out of town and I didn't know who it was. I was like, this is a really good song and this is a, this is a really great vocal. And who is this? And he told me it was Taylor Swift and I was like, all right. And I played, yeah, I played a bunch of guitar and I played some, I have a Wurlitzer electric piano and I did some synth stuff. Um, and so, yeah, the, one of those songs is on the, the regular record and then one of them is on the, there's one called Come Back Be Here that's on the deluxe version that I love. Hmm. That song, I think that's a really great song. My claim to fame on that, actually, I'm not even sure if it made the final mix, but I recorded some, I have a very nice piano that I'm babysitting, I'm a piano sitting. And I recorded it with my iPhone. <laughs> wow. <laughs> for the Taylor Swift album. Because I basically, I was about to like, you know, make it sound like it was recorded with an iPhone. I, I thought, well, I should just do it with my iPhone. Which I've done before. There's this weird, like, you know, everything gets digitally compressed. Not, like, it gets audio. The audio gets compressed. Yeah. With, the, with you know, DSP and the iPhone that can work really really well for certain things anyway so i did that on come back be here i don't know if that piano part made the final mix but it's fun (laughs) cool is it weird that knowing that like your guitar parts and the piano parts and whatever have been heard by half the world (laughs) it's pretty cool yeah i mean every once in a while i will you know i haven't i have not been involved in that many records that have sold tons and tons of copies I mean, CD sales in general are just kind of gone in the pits. But, but um, yeah, it's it's pretty cool. You don't really think about it that much. But, hmm. yeah, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Any projects that you're looking forward to in the future? That, um, or currently working on that you might hear yeah, about? Yeah, right now I'm kind of wrapping up a bunch of stuff that I've been working on last year, I did a lot of touring. So I would, I would get back into town and like scramble to finish stuff that I was working on. And I'm still kind of catching up on that. Yeah. I mean, I got some stuff in the works. Some of it's super top secret. Oh, <laughs> Although I don't know who wants to know my secrets because they're probably not worth having, but um, yeah, I'm actually kind of like last year was a very busy year and I'm kind of trying to regroup and figure out what my next, what my next step is. Um, I'd like to do more writing. Like I've been doing so much production and recording, I've kind of, I've stopped writing as much. So I'd like to do more songwriting. Um, yeah, I mean, the Laurels and I have been also, uh, we're going to try to make a push to to do more string work on records. I feel like we have a pretty unique thing in that, you know, I'm a competent arranger and recorder and they're a great quartet and we're kind of a unit that we want to let more people know about you know so that's something we've been meaning to do um 
I'm curious myself where what yeah, my next step sure. is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a tradition on the podcast okay. that each guest asks the next guest a question. So the question from my last guest, okay. Rishikesh Herway, yeah. is wondering if you could produce music outside of like the Pro Tools style hmm. linear way. If there was some other option for that, would you do that? Would I? And, oh, yeah. sure. Do you have any ideas of what? Um... I mean, one thing I I did recently. Actually, I've been thinking about releasing this. When my wife had our, I have twins, and then a girl. So her second her second birth, my third child. Um, I did my first generative composition. I love Ableton Live. I don't work in it all that much, but I do love it. And I, I found, I mean, this is very computer based still, but it was nonlinear. I found, um, I can't write my own max MSP scripts, but I found one that somebody did. And I sampled, I sampled my twins voices and turned them into like used, using granular synthesis. I turned them into instruments and then, um, I sampled my own heartbeat and then I basically set up I don't even know what you'd call them, but I set up these generative tools to, you know, I gave it some guidelines and then just like let it go for a half hour and recorded the output. Did you set it up so that it would change very slowly over that amount of time or did it, you know, you give it like limits, you know, so I, I, these are the notes you can choose from and these are how often they can happen. It, I mean, looking at the session now, I can't even tell you like how I, how I actually <laughs> set it up, but yeah, things would come in and out and sometimes they would be triggered to stop for five minutes and sometimes they'd come back in and, and I had multiple tracks, multiple single note tracks triggering notes of the scale randomly pseudo randomly so that the chord progressions were totally random so there were like chords happening but i can couldn't control them and there was almost like it was almost like counterpoint so there's a very slowly evolving chords which reminds me of a thought i had about a string quartet that i'd like to write someday a guy I went to college with wrote a string quartet that had lots of glisses in it and it was very dissonant it was very cool, but I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to use those same glisses and make them crazy slow, hmm. just like incredibly slow and have them go between like very lush, but consonant and like beautiful chords, you know? Yeah. Like Electric Counterpoint is one of my favorite pieces by Steve Reich. Hmm. It was a that. collaboration he did with Pat Metheny. 
And it's like, there are several movements, but the one that I really love is these huge stacks of chords that are like 50 notes, you know, from like the lowest note on a bass guitar to really high on a guitar. And they just, they're all repeated. And they kind of fade in and out with each other. And it's just like the most relaxing, like compelling. I mean, 20 years, I heard it like 20 years ago and I'm still like blown away every time I hear it. Something like that. So like strings... And I think I think you could use some sort of like nonlinear notation to do this whole gliss piece too, where you just like here's here's the first chord and here's the second chord, and it's up to you know the conductor or the first violin to like tell you when to land, you know. So these like slowly evolving chords, and I've used that slow gliss thing in things that I've written, you know, in place of like a trill, like the violin will just slowly gliss in between two notes every few seconds. It's very unsettling, but to have it settle into these very beautiful chords. So that's another yeah. idea. I, had. Yeah, I have lots I like of ideas. Idea. I'm not want for ideas. <laughs> yeah, I could. Um, I could keep going, <laughs> but I won't. <laughs> well, now you have to come up with give a, me question. a question for who is next... your next guest? Uh, John Munson. Oh, actually. really? Yeah. Man, bassist who, of Semisonic. Who, who grooms and... your mustache? Is that self-groomed? Because yeah. that is a that is a <laughs> Work of art. No, that's not my real question. Yeah, usually I don't tell people who it's who gonna it's be, gonna be. But I figured since you probably <laughs> know him. Um I mean this is a question that's like it's very specific and I'm sure the answer's on the internet somewhere, but maybe not. I'm I've always been curious what was the impetus for his fretless space playing in Trip Shakespeare. Hmm. And like he's a very melodic bass player. And there's like this, there's like this John Munson sound. He recently played on something I produced and there was like a two bar bass fill that he just spontaneously put in. And it's like, so John Munson, it's <laughs> like amazing. And I love it. I just cranked it up in the mix. Um, and he did that on upright bass, but it's got those like John Munson slides, you yeah. know, and I'm I'm wondering like how early he came to fretless bass and how much that kind of like influence the way he thinks about bass lines and constructing like melodies and counter melodies on the bass. That's my question. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Talk about one. fretless bass. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Well, the other tradition I have on the podcast, I ask everyone if they have time to um, work on a, a real short intro theme for the podcast episode. Okay. The composer, sure. Composer quests. Sure. At whatever. Yeah. That sounds fun. Yeah. All right, ready? Yeah. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Andy Thompson. You can find all his projects at andywho.com. The female singer you heard towards the beginning of this episode is Natalie Lovejoy with the song House of Coats. You can find Bell and Sebastian's new album at bellandsebastian.com and Jeremy Messersmith's music at jeremymessersmith.com. Since Andy talked about the rules he and Jeremy followed while making their albums, our question of the week is... What rules have you imposed upon yourself while composing? And which ones have been the most inspiring? 
Head over to forum.composerquest.com to share your thoughts. Now it's time for... When Andy Thompson and I were talking about commercial music, I mentioned that I started a stock music project. It hasn't really gone anywhere, but it was kind of a fun experiment, and my idea was that each track would be inspired by a corporate buzzword. For this production lesson, I'll break down one of my favorite tracks, Drinking the Kool-Aid. You've actually been hearing it lately. I'm using it as my lynda.com ad music. My goal with Drinking the Kool-Aid was to poke fun at the stereotypical commercial music that uses ukulele and glockenspiel. I started with some simple ukulele chords, 1-5-4-5 progression for the music theory people. In this demo recording, you can hear how my melody evolved quite a bit during the seven minutes I had the recorder going. Once I had the melody set, I started recording ukulele. For a nice stereo image, I recorded two similar ukulele parts and panned them all the way to the left and right. Then I added my main melody with a marimba. Next, a simple counter melody with a glockenspiel. And then an upright bass. glockenspiel and bass are all MIDI instruments that trigger samples of real instruments. Because they're percussive sounds, they can be emulated a lot better than a bowed string or wind instrument. I also added three MIDI percussion tracks. A drum kit, conga, and shaker. Together they sound like this. The biggest lesson I learned from this track came when I was trying to make the B section work. I went into it thinking I'd use the melody I came up with in the demo. It sounded like this. The more I listened, the more I got annoyed with it. I realized it was just too cluttered. So I stripped out most of the melody and replaced it with simple guitar strums.
I think sometimes when you have a section with complex chords that change quickly, the melody has to be simpler to compensate and help the listener adjust to the new ideas. One happy accident happened during this mix. I tried doubling my classical guitar with a flute, which sounded like this. But for some reason, in the final mix, it sounds kind of like a distorted electric guitar. Like Andy Thompson mentioned, you'll sometimes get a bigger sound when you have multiple instruments playing the same melody versus different melodies. You also might find a cool new timbre, like this flute and guitar thing, by doubling instruments. Before I play the final track, I should mention that you can find all these music production lessons at composerquest.com cmpl. Also, if you want to check out this Buzzword Music project, visit buzzwordmusic.com. I even created a Twitter bot that auto-tweets random buzzword phrases like two roads diverged in a wood and I, I harnessed killer deliverables, hashtag buzzword poetry, or get your stinking core competencies off me, you damn dirty thought leader, hashtag corporate movies. You can follow my tweet bot at buzzword music. Anyways, thanks for listening, and here's Drinking the Kool-Aid. <laughs>